2019 novel coronavirus named COVID-19 is on everybody's Facebook page, Twitter account, social media account. Um, and from a public perspective, one thing that uh, we fail to understand is that actually everything around this virus travels to our laboratories. And for this reason, we have invited Christine Bruce to join us today. Hi, Christine. Hello. If I could just maybe ask you to, to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, where you're at. Sure. So um, again, my name is Christine Bruce. I'm the Administrative Director for the Microbiology Laboratory at UHN and Mount Sinai in Toronto. Um, I've been a, a lab leader for just over 20 years, and I've worked in both the, the private sector uh, in rural, remote, and, and in the city, and then as well in the public sector, once in the community, and now in an academic centre downtown. Um, and in this arc of my career, I have not actually ever been in a situation quite like this. So I'm, I'm learning as I go. And it's, it's an exciting time to be a lab professional. But boy, oh boy, it's, it's a worrisome time too. I can just imagine. So I just want to first open by saying thank you on behalf of thousands of people in Ontario for the work you are doing and hoping you can maybe educate us and the public a little bit on what is the lab's role in addressing COVID-19. Sure, sure. Thank you, first of all. And it's it's an honor to do this work. Um, we, we certainly recognize the, the role we're playing as lab professionals, and, and we know how important it is. So, um, so to answer the question more directly, I mean, I feel like we're playing a critical role, and it's essential in addressing this pandemic situation. Um, as a testing facility, we're providing some of the differential guidance to clinicians in both diagnosing and defining whether the patients that they're seeing need to be isolated or not, particularly for this the 14-day window. Uh, we're providing those vital positive or negative for the virus results. I mean, the, the getting the positive or the negative is equally important um, in this situation. The frontline clinical evaluation process is super critical as far as how we're using our health resources and whether we need to gown up, whether we need to um, have somebody isolated, whether we need to use up a, a vital um, negative pressure room, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, the clinicians need to know, is my patient infected or not? And only the lab can provide that information. So if I am, let's say I am infected, who does it and where does my, where does my sample go? Like what's the process and where does it go? Sure. So today the sample of choice is unequivocally a nasopharyngeal swab that a clinician will collect. And it's a, it's a very uh, flexible, very thin swab that is inserted nasally and, and goes up closer to the uh, pharynx. And the sample, the, the, the nasal cavity is swabbed and the sample is collected in the flocking of the swab. And it's then submitted in universal transport media. So that's done at the, the bedside between the clinician and the patient. That sample is then transported. Uh, up to, to the laboratory to be tested. So it could be an in-house facility, it could be transported through a courier uh, to an outside facility for testing, but that's how the sample is collected and shipped. So there's a lot of news potentially that people are reading about uh, the, the supply of this swab. And so there's many vendors that make this sample kit type. We're all working with vendors to maintain a supply chain that the province can access with judicious stocking and, and using um, good parsing off uh, practices and, and trying to uh, prohibit stockpiling. So again, so the samples are collected uh, across the country. They're submitted to affiliated labs, as I said, either in-house or a distance away for a COVID-19 viral PCR test. That's the methodology of choice right now. And the only one that's available is PCR. And the tests assess for the presence of extracted COVID-19 RNA. 
So if I was to get tested, is there an average turnaround time for me to receive my results? Sure. So initially, um, and I'm going to speak primarily from my camp, so at the UHN Mount Sinai Microbiology Laboratory, we are running around 24 hours turnaround time. And that was the initial turnaround time that the uh, Public Health of Ontario laboratories were running as well. But obviously, now with the assessment centers opening up, much more patient traffic and much more healthcare worker traffic coming through, those turnaround times at the PHOL are starting to extend. And we're, we're trying to manage that as a lab community as everybody gets their method up and running, because of course, not everybody has a live method. We're all in the middle of different states of validation. I'm in a very fortunate position to have a validated method because we, we hopped on the situation fairly quickly and, and had the luxury of equipment at our fingertips to start to do some work. Just in reading some general information that's available to the public, it, it seems like a lot of hospitals are taking extra precautions now. So for example, I had an appointment just the other day at my local hospital and was advised not to come in and they've rescheduled my appointment. You know, the news today has changed again, saying they're only going to allow, you know, people that need to be there. So it's interesting because with this virus, the um, responses from the hospital seems to be changing every day. What about the lab? Are the precautions different in the lab and do they change based on what's happening? Sure. So they have been changing a little bit day to day. I would say maybe a week ago, it felt like things were changing daily. I think we're in a steady spot right now. So, so given the updated information on the COVID-19 virus, droplet and contact precautions are recommended for routine care of patients. Uh, whether it's um, you know, managing the specimens in the laboratory or doing the collection of specimens when the individuals are suspected or confirmed of having COVID-19. Airborne precautions, which are the, the more um, enhanced uh, masking and whatnot, are used for aerosol generating procedures. So if we're doing a surgery or if we're doing something with a lot of um, sort of sort of shaking of samples, that kind of thing. So initially, um, where you may or may not know, the, the epidemiological information about the virus was evolving and the ministry advised that we would exclusively use and 95 respirators for patient care and specimen collection, as well as isolation rooms if they were available. So now after a few months, we've had some global clinical experience and, and deeper evidence made available to us. And the routes of transmission for COVID-19 appear to be droplet and contact transmission with most cases linked to person to person where there's been close or direct contact with someone who's positive. So we feel comfortable using the droplet contact precautions, which would include having a routine surgical mask on, as well as a face shield and eye protection, a gown and gloves. And so that's what we're using in my laboratory today. There are some laboratories that I know are still using N95s because they just feel, feel safer, but we've done a risk assessment and feel like we're um, doing our employees a service by having the surgical masks and the face shields um, as their facial protection. And it's also providing the staff with a bit more comfort, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Some of this PPE is really, really, it's hot, it's uncomfortable, it's expensive, it's in short supply. So if we can do the right thing with our resource stewardship and have this kind of protection, mm -hmm. then I, I think it's a good idea. And of course, we're using biosafety cabinets whenever we're opening samples, because that is the, the the guidance that we need to continue to process these um, samples in that kind of um, ventilation. That's great. So I'm just going to sort of talk a little bit more about sort of the human factor here. And I understand that I think one of the challenges forever and ever uh, within the lab profession is that these are 
you know, people call them sort of the unsung heroes or heroes that are hidden because when we go into the hospital, we usually deal with our doctors, our nurses, people we deal with directly, but a lot of people don't understand that there are thousands and thousands of technologists and um, thousands of lab assistants um, that are involved in patient care. And with the current situation, that again comes to light, which is why we're talking today about uh, focusing on the lab and the importance. But how are your people doing and how are they feeling right now? So I can only speak to the vibe, obviously, in my laboratory. And I've got in, in micro, we've got 72 folks that they're all working together on this situation, as well as the parallel day-to-day work that we always do. Uh, but I expect that it's representative of the broader lab community. And I can say that that there are waves of anxiety and stress and craving for accurate information because, you know, you do get caught in that Twitter vortex and social media saturation of information and you're wondering kind of what what is the what is the right thing to do what what should I believe but the team is nothing but positive and focused we know how utterly critical the work is that we do and we know that we're that source of truth for the clinicians and that we have to do our job really really well so there's a huge attention on taking our time doing the right thing striving for accuracy putting in the best methods trying to enhance our platform to create more capacity because other sites don't have the luxury of some of the equipment that we have And so, you know, you have these bursts of frustration and confusion that often come with situations that were initially fraught with hourly to daily to now weekly changes. And as we're all trying to find our stride, we have those little bursts of maybe not being our best selves. But at the end of the day, we all have settled down really, really well, understand what we have to do. And we start every day with a huddle of what do we need to know today? What's going to change? What can we all do together to try to absorb the change quickly and just get back on the track of doing the testing? Definitely sounds like the measure of true professionals. I mean, working in an environment under such stress, knowing that the results going out to the public are extremely important. Like I couldn't even imagine being in that environment right now. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And I had no idea what to expect um, and how to, what types of leadership um, skills I would need to summon to be able to, to sort of shepherd my team through all of this and, and provide some assurance to the hospital that we're on top of it and we're, we're just trying to stay ahead of the game with everybody else. And, and the team has made this really easy for me simply by being the true professionals that they are and working really well together, whether it's the clerical team, the MLA team or the MLT team. Everyone is relying on each other to do their piece really, really well and just trusting the upstream process to ultimately come up with a, a good outcome for the clinicians and the patients. The last thing I want to touch upon is um, is a project we have actually been working at the association um, and one that you're aware of. So some statistics that have come out of the um, college here in Ontario in regards to medical lab technologists is that there could there is an impending um, retirement shortage that we may be dealing with shortly. Um, so the data is telling us about 44% of medical lab technologists will be eligible to retire in the next four to eight years. Knowing this data, have you felt any pressure on your team? Have you felt any pressure with shortages? You know, when you look to the future and you look at your team, are you concerned about that shortage? And let's start with that question. Sure. So I 
I have days where I worry about the shortage and then, and then I don't. So if we were not in a pandemic situation, I, I don't have too much trouble um, re recruiting for, for vacancies and, and backfilling the uh, retirements that, that are certainly on the rise. Um, in this current situation, I think there's a little bit of an aversion to working in microbiology right now. <laughs> but I also know that there's a lot of facilities that are all looking for people and we're all vying for the same resources. So the whole lab community has all of a sudden said, whoa, we need people not just for our routine attrition, but now for this, this big looming issue that we're all dealing with. And so access to resources is really, really, um, it's, it's at a premium for sure. When I think about the predicted trajectory that we've talked about lots of times around where this profession is and, and what it's on towards burnout and early retirements, or people sort of triggering that retirement at 55 instead of 65, and, and folks, the, the, the long-term folks or the, the high-performing folks that are abandoning their aspirations of leadership, that trajectory, I think, is shrinking in, in this particular situation because it, it is a lot harder. The work is, it feels like it's quite pressuresome. People can see the mounds of work without really an understanding of, of how long is this going to go on. And I appreciate that there will be an end to this. We've seen the other communities that have gone through the COVID-19 crisis locally, and, and they have sort of gone over their curve and are now coming down the other side. But I think that some of the folks who were here during SARS and who are now here during COVID-19, they're thinking, ooh, is there another one on the horizon? I just may want to check out of this profession now. And I've heard sort of conversations intimating that a little bit. And I thought, oh my goodness, this, mm -hmm. this, this concern we have is actually probably a little bit closer right. um, than we expected. Right. If you, if I was to, if I was to ask you, what would be your one piece of advice that you would give to the public in regards to this pandemic? What would you say it was? Okay. So as I have been working as a volunteer in the hospital here at Mount Sinai um, for a couple of days and sort of managing the uh, the patient flow and trying to triage people at the door to, to do some heightened infection control practices. And so I've had a good opportunity to talk to the public. And of course, we get into the conversation around what I do and, and why I'm at the door kind of thing. And so my position in the laboratory uh, does come up. And so that creates a bit of interest, um, wondering what it is that we do. And so I think that for advice to the public is, is first just talk to your healthcare professionals about the, the bigger picture, right? Try to understand more than what's happening um, in your seat, because it will give you some comfort that there is a large group of people really working on the situation and working on your problem in particular. And you get that vibe that, that there's really that nice commitment there. And I, and I found that in talking to some of the patients that I visited yesterday and today, that they really did have a different perspective on, on this situation and the diagnostic side of it for sure. Mm -hmm. I would also ask for people to, to be patient and for people to really take the guidance that the government is providing in particular around staying at home, around good hand washing, all of those good things that we're being told um, literally hour by hour to really take that to heart because it is the only way that we're going to get ahead of this. Mm -hmm. I believe that yesterday there was some commentary online about how Social distancing, as an example, is a good prescription, and it will work, but it does need to be applied. We do need to take the time to let it start to work, and, and it is none of this of these tactics that we're using are going to be overnight overnight fixes for sure. So, and I I keep coaching my social network about this type of thing that you know really this isn't just you know wash your hands and and people slough it off. We really mean it. This is something that's really really critical to the success of getting on the other side of this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would just continue to reinforce that for sure. But then also to give their lab professionals a pat on the back because we're we're working pretty hard up here to get all the answers and to get everybody on the right treatment path really quickly. 
that's uh, that's some really great advice and actually it uh, feeds quite well into just sort of my closing comment of mm. we have launched a thank you page um, to allow the public to go on to our website to mlpao.org and actually log in and send a thank you to lab professionals. Um, we launched it a couple of days ago and we've got tons of thank yous coming in. So it's just a way to kind of say, hey folks, even though we don't see you, we know you're working hard, so thank you. So I would encourage anybody that's listening to the podcast to be able to do that. So I'm gonna close. I wanna thank you, Christine, first for taking time to speak with us today. I know your schedule, I can't even imagine how busy it is, but on behalf of the MLPAO and on behalf of uh, Ontario in general, we would like to thank you for your continued dedication and um, and hopefully the next time that we talk and we speak, we'll be talking about something differently. Absolutely. My pleasure. 